first I just wanted to say to some of the people that will be um, having a healthy and happy new year. And I know that that might keep, have kept a few people from coming tonight, also the weather, and also the parking. Uh, some of you were here um, at the reopening, the grand reopening of this um, library on August 10th, and it was quite a special day. And one of the things that we talked about um, during that time was the fact that we are going to really pursue getting parking for this library. Now, we made sure that we said it in front of the mayor of the city. And after the election, we sent a little email, just a reminder, about that. And um, I just want you to know that we're working with the Department of Planning, and we're trying to secure parking adjacent to the library, and we are hopeful that there will be an opportunity to at least have 10 to 20 spaces, free spaces that are right there at the library. So just wanted to let you know that. And if you haven't had a chance to look around the branch, we're really excited about it. It's one of the branches that, um, one of only two, that is loaning the new e-readers. And so far, people have been um, very excited about that. Um, that gentleman mm -hmm. is saying that, he, oh, she has one? Oh, we'll have you show it off after <laughs> and tell us what you like about it. <laughs> At the dedication, the mayor was the first person to check one out and she has since returned it <laughs> and we're very pleased. So this is a, an opportunity and we wanted to do something very special here, um, not only because of the reopening and everything, but also to show that we don't just have special Writers Live programs at the Central Library. Now we have a lot and we have hundreds of people and all types of um, audiences and things like that. We also wanted to make sure that you didn't have to go downtown to hear someone like our speaker tonight. And he has very graciously um, agreed to be here tonight. Um, he's used to throngs in downtown <laughs> and a big suave and a sipping of the wine and we got water tea. Uh, I mean fancy smancy affairs. He's also though a dedicated uh, Baltimorean and he has been a donor to the Enoch Crabtree Library for more than 25 years and he has been a steady and wonderful supporter, and we owe him greatly. He was born and raised here in Baltimore, and he definitely doesn't want you to forget about it. <laughs> so we've all been enjoying his stories for decades. First, as a feature writer for the Baltimore Sun, the Evening Sun, and the Sunday Sun. I'm a relatively newcomer to, I heard the little sign, when I said the Evening Sun and the Sunday Sun, and, and those are, those papers, from what I understand, were legend and really something that people still miss, the depth and the professionalism. Many of you remember and grew up with his amazing columns in the Sunday Sun called Baltimore Glimpses, and he is truly a man who loves this city. His books reflect that undying love for Baltimore, and you'll be able to purchase them um, here tonight, uh, we have a special representative from the Ivy Bookstore, one of the best independent bookstores in the city and this region. And he has a new book from Johns Hopkins Press, Homefront Baltimore. He's also the host of WYPR's popular show, Baltimore Stories. So please welcome and make him feel wonderful about being here with us in Baltimore, in a neighborhood, our dear friend, Mr. Gilbert It's a little overblown. Uh, thanks to a, a number of people for that introduction, by the way, reminds me of this great story. Abby Bond was introducing Harry Truman uh, State Banquet, and Abby Bond was very uh, uh, eloquent and loquacious and 
gave a long, very flattering speech, and Truman over to the side here, breaking out in tears. But Bond leans over and says, Mr. President, what's the problem? What happened? He said, you spoke so beautifully about me, I thought I was dead. <laughs> First, I owe uh, thanks to many people, libraries and museums, too numerous to mention, but arguably I owe the most to the Eno Pratt Free Library and its able and knowledgeable researchers, beginning with, but not limited to, Jeff Corman, who heads the Maryland Department. But, boy and man, I've turned to the library. I went to school 59, Keyworth Avenue, Ricestown Road. And every Friday afternoon, at the end of school, the whole class would walk across Park Heights Avenue to the Branch 16 for Story Hour. Anybody remember Story Hour? You're all so young. <laughs> well, um, that was a big thing in our lives, and I've been connected to the to over 80 years ago. And I even remember the stories that were read to me. They were Dr. Doolittle and the Animals. I wonder if they still carry that at the library. Um, but all of this is largely possible because the Pratt Library in Baltimore has one of the most energetic, imaginative, and um, I would say creative uh, librarians in America, Carla Hayden, and we owe her. The Baltimore you will see in these pictures is the Baltimore of 1941 through 1944. And whenever um, we have all this gadgetry here, I gotta hope you're gonna see these pictures. Um, we've all dealt with computers that get very moody. The Baltimore you will see in these pictures is the Baltimore of 1941 through 1945. And to those of you who knew the look and feel of the place before the war, the pictures will be recognizable and they will indeed bring back some memories. Those of you who do not know what Baltimore looked like before the war and cannot appreciate what it looked like during the war, this is a history lesson. And it's a history lesson where each and every one of you is involved because this was a huge war. It's not like wars today. I would gather that almost nobody in this room today has any connection to the war in Iraq. Maybe you do, but I doubt it. Or Afghanistan. But in World War II, everybody was connected to that war one way or another. And you'll hear me say that before. It was a popular, supported war, and maybe the last popular, supported war. The uh, recruitment stations opened at 9, but by 6.30 in the morning, every one of them had a long line. People wanted to fight this war. Another thing I want to mention to you is that I have a lot of music in here from World War II. And the reason I do is that I discovered in all my writing that music transports. Couples fell in love at USOs in World War II to music. And 40 years later they said they're playing our song. You know, it's so I have a lot of music and I hope you uh, recognize it. And if you don't, if you think the music's weird, you have to live with that. <laughs> well, a day in the spring of 2006, this is how this book got started. I found myself in the library of the Baltimore Sun doing research for a weekly editorial page column I used to write called Baltimore Glimpses, you heard speak of it. And as I rifled through back editions, the issue of June 20th, 1944, got my attention. I knew that date, and I stopped what I was doing. It was D plus five in the Battle of Saipan, and I happened to have been there aboard a Navy ship as a navigator. And we helped land as many as 20,000 troops in less than three weeks. And before that operation was completed, over 3,000 American soldiers would die. But reading through that, those pages, and knowing what I knew about Saipan and the Pacific War, there was life going on just as if we weren't there. And of course it would. Um, 
the Orioles were moving in and out of first place. The stadiums were full. There were grand openings of brand new movies. Gone with the Wind opened in 1939 or 40, taking through there. Uh, life went on, but there's no reason why I wouldn't. It just it struck me that it was odd that it should. Um, the searches became habit for me, and I kept looking for these juxtapositions. I found some interesting ones. In July 42, when bandleader Tommy Dorsey was performing on the stage of the Hippodrome Theater on Utah Street, American prisoners of war were performing Julius Caesar on a jury rigged stage in Burma. Same time. And I don't know what there was about that that said, i got to write about that. I draw no morals from that, so you don't have to draw your own. But I did find a quote that said it pretty well. Washington Post, a Sergeant William Quinn, going home from Iraq for rest and rest recreation after serving eight months in Iraq, wrote, I found myself in the Detroit airport heading for the baggage claim. And I observed, there were travelers walking and talking on their cell phones, chatting with friends, acting just the way people had before I left for Baghdad. He was astonished at that. He said, the war didn't seem to be taking place in another country. It seemed to be taking place in another universe. He said, there I was in desert camouflage. And I'm wondering how the intensity, how the violence, how the tears, how the killing could really be happening at the same time that all these people here in the States were hurrying to catch their flights to their vacations, to their vacation spots in California. How indeed, and I share the wonder of that in this book. Sunday mornings in Baltimore in the 1940s were quiet and uneventful. There was a special reason for that. We had something called blue laws. Anybody remember blue laws? Craziest thing you ever saw. <laughs> you know, you you could buy meat but not bread, all kinds of things. You couldn't you couldn't paint your your porch, you'd be arrested for it. And you couldn't go you could go to the ball game, but you couldn't buy a ticket, you had to buy a program because they couldn't sell a ticket to the ball game. But that's the way it was. Anyway, it was very quiet, not much was going on. For the most part, people were spending the morning reading the Sunday papers and listening to the radio. Everybody had a radio. And the mood was shattered went over the radio just after noon on December 7th, 1941 came the breathtaking announcement the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor we could not believe they did that attack America it, it, it was a, we weren't prepared for that we weren't prepared for that but it began a four year transforming experience on war fronts and home fronts for young and old, rich and poor, black and white this war was large, encompassing. It was fought on five continents and seven seas. It was wrenching. It tore families apart, marriages apart. You know, it took something like six weeks to get a letter to your husband or wife or sister or brother. We did not have, they did not have email. You're lucky if the letter got there at all. Everybody was touched by it. From the Baltimore area alone, a quarter of a million men left to serve. 6,000 never came back. And yet, it was popularly supported. You'll see later how, how very popular supported it was. Few on that Sunday morning could possibly envision what lay ahead for the next uh, four years, how their lives would change. And this book is a presentation about those years. How we laughed, cried, worried, and waited endlessly and dreamed. It's about the tone and mood of a city suddenly dealing with the unfamiliar and sometimes frightening experience. The mournful wail of a siren. The loneliness of the blackouts. The threatening discomfort of rationing. Food, closing, gasoline. The sadness of farewells and the joy of homecoming. So let's go now to home front ball. We're circa 1941. Winston Churchill sets a tone of resolve. The newscaster breaks news of the war. And President Roosevelt speaks to a worried nation. Let's hope this works. I think, you know, 
Which is Churchill? Everybody hear that? <laughs> That's President Roosevelt. Here's the Congress reward. And so we went to war. We didn't realize what was happening. Suddenly, out of nowhere, we went to war. First with Japan, days later with Germany. But maybe we shouldn't have been too surprised. Because Baltimore, of all cities in America, was at war before America itself was. Because we had these huge war plants, Glen Martin, Bendix, Bethlehem Shipyards, and in 1938 and 1939, we were already building armaments and sending them to Britain. So um, maybe we weren't all that surprised. But Baltimore changed dramatically in those years. On the streets, in the restaurants, in the parks, everywhere were shift workers walking the streets with nothing to do in their spare time. And soldiers and sailors and marines with nothing to do. And so the city fathers recognized everybody was far from home with nothing to do. And so they opened what we called USOs. Does everybody know what a USO is? They were the facilities, recreation facilities, where servicemen could go in and write letters, take a nap. Mostly what they did what they wanted to do was dance. That's Glenn Miller and Moonlight Serenade. That's a sing-along at 309 West, oh, 309 North Charles Street. The piano player, I chased her down to Suzanne Kahn. The night is January the 12th. 1942. And I checked that date. The same time, the very same night on the other side of the world, Japanese troops were storming ashore on Bataan, setting the stage for the infamous Bataan death march. And I just couldn't get over that that was happening. I want to show you this because this was a segregated war. Very few African Americans were in the armed forces because the only way they would let them in is if they would be janitors or cooks. So they had their own facilities and they called them the separate army. I have to tell you about this story. Look at that sergeant. See those stripes there on the left? This big guy here. When the book, when the book came out, it went up on the internet in the morning. And that picture on the cover of the book. At about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I got a call. I said, you Gilbert Sandler, yeah. You write that book? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the problem? Because I'm used to that. He said, that sergeant on the cover at that USO. What about him? He said, that's my father. And the woman, he married her. Their name was Nidale. And... Um, at the book signing uh, uh, down in the Baltimore uh, Museum of Industry. They were there uh, to take a vow for people. But this was the African-American uh, gang that uh, ran the USOs. I have to tell you this one story. It's um, very poignant. It speaks to the segregation of the times. This woman, Ms. Lockwood, Frances Lockwood, I interviewed her. 
He said, I'll never forget the time I was traveling on a bus going to see my husband at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. He was to be commissioned a second lieutenant. It was a big deal for an African American to be a second lieutenant in World War II. It was a big deal. There weren't many of them. She said, I got on in Baltimore, took all my luggage and sat down in the middle of the bus. And when we got to the Virginia line, they stopped the bus. And the police got on. He came to me and he said, Lady, you have to get to the back of the bus. I said, what are you talking about? I'm going to Fort Belvoir. I'll be there in an hour. My husband's graduating. He's going overseas tomorrow. He said, Lady, if you don't get to the back of the bus, you're never going to see him because I'm going to lock you up. She got to the back of the bus. This was a USO, a firehouse that was uh, converted. There were weddings. Everybody there's in the military. There's another USO, but everybody's in the military. You know there were weddings at Penn Station? Guys would come in, have three hours or, or overnight. They get they had preachers and rabbis at Penn Station, and they would get married. They had built a little chapel, I guess, on the side, and uh, they got married there. And that's the way a lot of it was, was done. I show you this because uh, these girls, though, Hothold sisters went to every USO and danced their shoes off. <laughs> and shoes were rationed. <laughs> so they issued these, whatever these shoes were made of, cardboard, and they had dozens of shoes. The shoes would last about a week. And so they got famous for collecting these worn out shoes from dancing at the USOs. You don't know the Andrews sisters, you don't know World War II. They have to have a play this through. His number came up. He's in the army now. There's Company B, more or less. <laughs> Everybody, every able-bodied person, young man, was either called up or volunteered. And listen, there was no escaping this war. If you were in high school, you knew you were going to go into the armed service. You could get a deferment if you went to college for a year or two and, and mess around with various uh, uh, programs. But they'd get you in the end and you went. And they say, oh, sure, you could uh, uh, come here and we'll give you a deferment for four years. Two years later, they said, there is no deferment. We, we were only kidding. So, I mean, everybody went. And uh, these swearing-in services were all over town. And they marched them through town to the various train stations to uh, take them to Fort Meade or, or Bainbridge on the eastern shore. And all day long, this is what downtown looked like. This is a city that was really at war. All these guys are being sworn in the United States Navy. There's a street down there on the, near, uh, I don't know, downtown, by that Peel Museum. And they're all going in the Navy. Everybody went. I mean, you couldn't wait to go. And this is what you saw running through downtown Baltimore. Army trucks, every other truck, every other car were soldiers on their way somewhere. And all of them, sooner or later, were going to ship out. And of course, marching, 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 everywhere. And this is, of course, a, I couldn't resist this picture. This poor raw recruit, poor cold water on his leg, on his feet. Um, he's not used to marching. And this, again, is the, uh, again, the separate army. Anybody know what that is? You, help, you were given one to hang in your window if you had someone in the service. That's right. If you had someone in the service, you were asked to hang a flag that had a blue star on it. And you'd go up a city street, a row of houses, just blue star, blue star, blue star, blue star. And then there were gold stars. And what were these gold stars? Missing in action, killed in action. 
I'm going to take time out to tell you a little story. On the night in late May, I think I'll do better. On a night in late May of 1944, an American aircraft, having completed a bombing mission in Italy, was flying back to its base when it took flat and burst into fire. The crew prepared to abandon ship and parachute out one by one when they discovered that their gunner was suffering from a wound in his leg. The crew members strapped the wounded gunner to his parachute and threw him out. He pulled the ripcord, and slowly he descended to the ground. The story read, when the gunner hit the ground, he came to to understand that German soldiers had seized him and that he was a prisoner of war in Yugoslavia and that he would be sent to a German prisoner of war camp. I saw that in the paper, and I chased that story down, and I found it. The guy's name was Sergeant Bernard Blum from Baltimore, the son of Mr. and Mrs. David Blum of 3621 Dioga Parkway. He graduated Baltimore City College in 1942, and I was in school in 1940. I must have known him. And later that year, joined the Army. In November of 1943, he married a woman named Shirley Kirsch, and they lived at 2216 Loyola South Greyhound Baltimore, can you get it? Sergeant Blum had gone overseas in early 1944. In September 44, his wife received word that her husband, Bernard, was alive, but a prisoner of war in Germany. Then, silence. For weeks, months, nothing. And that was not untypical. That happened all over town. Husbands, wives did not know where their husbands were. They hadn't heard from them in weeks, months. You'd write the fleet post office. That, that's how you communicate. Well, I'll finish that story in a minute. You don't recognize that song, Miss Call. I left my heart at the stage door canteen by Irving Berlin. My sweetheart was a girl named Irene. Show you this because this is what downtown Baltimore looked like. Shift workers. We had thousands were being hired every day. They mostly came out of the hills of Appalachia, West Virginia. This is a Liberty ship. And the interesting thing is it was made in they were turning them out of Bethlehem shipyards. And guess what's there today? The Ritz Carlton. Can you imagine that? The Ritz Carlton. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we've turned out a lot of Liberty ships, and the the, the streetcars. Streetcars. Everybody know what a streetcar is? <laughs> came every 24 seconds to pick up all the workers. One motorman told me you could walk across the top the roofs of streetcars for a full city block. That's how many streetcars were lined up. Who had a car? Who could get gasoline? These are Martin bombers. <coughs> Excuse me. This is another view of the ship. Massive, thousands of people every day, every day. I'll show you there. this. I worked there. Did you? The summer of 1938, when I graduated from the city, I got a job at Fairfield. Rode the number 32 streetcar six o'clock every morning all the way down there to Curtis Bay. How many cars did you take? Just one? Just the one. Uh, the, the 32 went down Linden Avenue back behind where I live. His name is David Traub and he won the war. <laughs> <laughs> Great guys. Um, this is a trailer park village at Glen L. Martin. So many people, so many men and women worked at Glen L. Martin they couldn't have time to build houses. So they built this trailer village. And guess what the names of the streets were? Propeller Lane, Fuselage Avenue. Another view, thousands. It was a massive thing. This is a kind of sad. Let me show you something here. This is Lexington Street. You can recognize the Julius Gutmans 
some of you remember, as gold does, uh, Hutzler's is up there, sort of in the middle, Hoschel's. And this is Lexington Street on a busy afternoon in 1943. Now watch what happens. That's an air raid siren. Now watch. Where'd everybody go? Down into the air raid shelters. They did that all day long. And there were all surprises. You didn't know when it was going to happen. So any appointment that you had in mind, forget it. A doctor's appointment, it didn't matter. You had to go into the air raid shelter or you would have been arrested. And that's the way Baltimoreans live. These guys, I thought it was interesting, they got caught on a bus. And they didn't know when that bus would get started again or where they're going, if they're going to be late for work, late for home. And they were stuck there for Lord knows how long. I show you this because this is a grandmother See the candle in the middle? They live by candlelight during the air raids. But it darkened the houses and a black in the windows. And these children are reading by the same candlelight. By the way, the little light that did get through created a silhouette of Baltimore, believe it or not, that German submarines picked up off the coast of Ocean City. The German submarines sank dozens of merchant ships off of Rehoboth Beach and Ocean City. And if you're over the Eastern Shore today, you can still see those towers along the beach. They were watchtowers. Um, and we lost. The government did not tell you that we were losing those ships because they did not want you to know how close the Germans were to us. This next one is very interesting. Stick or powder. There's another. She's at Bendix. Um, Julia Handler, age 18, graduate of Patterson Park High School. I tried to find her, but I couldn't. Um, these are, of course, women uh, uh, for field positions. I want to tell you why this whole Rosie the River thing is so important. One more first. How about that? Changing times, changing tires. Look, how many women here change tires? Right. The women's movement that you know that changed the history of our lives grew out of Rosie the Riveters. I'm told that most of the students in law school are women. And almost half of the women, uh, half the students in medical school are women. Where do you think that came from? There was a time they couldn't even get into medical school. They wouldn't allow them. It came out of the war because women demonstrated that they could do a man's job just as well. And so people paid a lot of attention uh, to that and they came out of the war and said, we're not going back to that again. Under the hood, right? And of course, Red Cross uh, work. I have to tell you about these uh, 
parades. When we were attacked, we had no money. We were a country was broke. We were in the in the recession, a depression, which started about 1931, 32. And uh, when the war came, we didn't have an army, we didn't have a navy, we didn't have the facilities to make war, and so we certainly didn't have the money. So how did we get it? How did we get all these planes and tanks and guns? And how do we do all that? War bonds. We borrowed it from you or your parents or grandparents. The government whooped it up. They said, we're going to win this war. Fight the Japanese. Fight the Germans. And the way to do it is to buy war bonds. And Hollywood put on shows. Every community put on a block party. Everybody bought war bonds. And so we got the money. Ultimately, we paid it back, of course. And I sometimes wonder why we can't pay this debt that we have. Why can't we just sell bonds again? But, uh, anyway, um, of course, the Red Cross. Speaking of apples, they didn't grow apples so much. But there were 20,000 victory gardens in Baltimore City alone. Behind big houses in Guilford and little houses in Houston, everybody was growing carrots and beans and onions and corn. There was not a, particularly a scarcity of them, but you have to get in line to get them so people learned how to do it themselves. And they did it. Um, that's, uh, I have her name. Uh, I try to find her in a phone book too. <coughs> Henry Walker. Oh no, no, that's that's uh, Henry Walker of um, 29, 27 North Calvert Street. Oh, give me lines, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Now, civil defense, very big thing in World War II. I gotta tell you about these guys. These are the Towson Minutemen. They had, I believe, their wooden guns. But they were on record as saying if the Germans ever come up York Road, they'd kill them. The Germans never came up York Road. But they called themselves the Towson Minutemen and they were there the axis to invade Baltimore County. And they were gonna take care of it. But civil defense was a big we had to educate people on the sizes of bombs and their power to destroy and uh, tell them what to do when they, uh, one of those things says, uh, when you hear two blasts, uh, take cover. Um, and people were instructed in that. Um, this is uh, Baltimore and um, St. Paul Street. And if you look at the top, there are the air raid sirens. And when they, they sound in the middle of the day, you had to leave what you were doing and you'd have to go down into the air raid shelter. And uh, work or no work, that's what it was. That's the, uh, it used to be the B&O building. I believe that's a hotel now. But anyway, wherever there's uh, big windows, big glass windows, uh, we filled it with sandbags waiting for the bombs to fall. By the way, no bombs fell. Now, this is interesting because if you look in the back, you can see that those guys are right in front of the century of Valencia Theater. You see in the background? And they're wearing gas masks. They're ready to greet the Japanese as they come up Oliver Street. But uh, it didn't happen. Children, of course, were alerted. They were told, children, when the alarm rings, get to your, to, uh, get to your coat, take it to the shelter, and sit on it. Fortunately, I say the bombs never fell. These were high school kids. I think that's polytechnic training. And this was an air raid spotting was a very big thing. Um, women did all the air raid spotting and they were looking for, they were trained to understand the shapes of the planes. They never in all the years of spotting spotted an enemy plane except there was one incident. A woman said, looking through the glasses, 
Messerschmitts flying south and it alerted the whole East Coast and set the country crazy and it turned out to be geese flying south. Here's something that ought to make you really feel good when you say those waste fats to turn into your butcher. Those waste, waste fats, fats not only help to make explosives, plastic, gas, and nazis, but they're used to make medicine to help our fighting men when they get sick or wounded. Yes, those waste fats do a double duty. They help to blast the enemy, but they're also sending them on an errand of mercy to our wounded men all over the world. This is a South Baltimore grocer got his name too. His name is um, George Tabak. And he's measuring out a pound of ration sugar for Mrs. Rosal Thompson. She happened to be the wife of Judge Rosal Thompson. And she presents her coupons um, for sugar. And that's how you that's how you got it. There were always people we knew how to game the system. And they always had meat stamps or sugar stamps. I don't know how they did it, but all people always had ways. But most people had to stand in lines. And the expression was, when you see a line in Baltimore, get in it. Because you don't know what's at the other end. Of course, people hoarded. By the way, one of the shortages was in women's hosiery because the nylon was used to make parachutes. So a cosmetic company came up with an idea. It was a solution, the color of the hose, and you painted it on your leg. And then the woman said, yeah, but it has no seam. In those days, hosers had seam. So they came out with a little black pencil and you drew the seam up the leg and they got away with it. Gasoline was, a, I mean, to be without a car, well, you know, although we had streetcars in and they got you, they, they worked pretty well. But gasoline rationing was uh, was a way of life. And there again, I don't know how people did it. Some people always had gasoline stamps. Speaking of stamps, there's a ration book. Nobody understood how the system worked either. But you had it. And then again, these lines. Always lines. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. Members of the Congress, I have the great pleasure and the high privilege of presenting to you the president of the United States. This is Harry Truman. Another person of applause and cheers. And then, Americans settle back to listen to their new president. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, it is with a heavy heart that I stand before you, my friends and colleagues, in the Congress of the United States. The train passed through Penn Station, but it didn't stop on its way from Warm Springs, Georgia, where Roosevelt died, to Hyde Park where he was to be buried, but Baltimoreans lined all of the bridges that the trains went under uh, to watch uh, for the trains to come through. And this is Penn Station. Uh, that's Governor uh, Mayor McKeldin, a tall guy, you can see him there. And over there, on my right, is uh, Tommy Dallasander, was congressman with his uh, family. And it's, it's hard for succeeding generations I never knew another president. He was president from 1932 till he died in 1945. And he was a wartime leader, so when he died, before the Germans surrendered, before, certainly before the Japanese surrendered, it was a terrible blow. Who would lead us? And it was a, a frightening thought at the time. Well, Speaking of streetcars, everybody, including streetcars, went to war. 
Every streetcar was painted in love with women. Take war work. Need it now. Join the waves. On to Tokyo. Serve 12 hours each week in the United whatever. <laughs> That's called Remember Pearl Harbor. I have to tell you that we went to war. We did not have the material to make armaments, the rubber, the metal. And so we asked all families to go through their attics and put out on the sidewalks anything made of metal that they could spare, made of rubber. That included old refrigerators, tires, typewriters, bedposts, whatever they could do, and of course the army, there's pictures of them in neighborhoods. Every day, without that scrap, that's downtown, you can recognize the, the tower of the post office there. And the tires, we did not have, uh, people were, were they weren't doing retreading tires, and when you went 55 miles an hour, the retread went off. Uh, Baltimore was a home front town of, I mean, a, um, a liberty town. And uh, this is some pictures, it's hard to see. Uh, they went to, uh, they came in from Fort Meade and went to Little Italy for spaghetti and they danced at the, uh, at the uh, USOs and of course down here in the lower right after 12 hours and uh, 24 hours in Baltimore, they're sleeping at the bus station ready to go home. Uh, but we had a lot of soldiers and sailors and Marines. Um, in Baltimore for 12-hour uh, passes, 24-hour passes. Um, what to do when we were constantly educating people, what to do when that rage signal sounds. And I picked up one. Fill the bathtub up with water in case a water main breaks and an incendiary bomb falls. Play a spray from a garden hose on the bomb. Good luck on that one. Uh, this is interesting because it's the Army-Navy game. During the war, the Army-Navy game. I don't know what street they're marching up, but they're on the way to um, uh, what became Municipal Stadium in 1944. It looks like St. Paul. They're on their way up. Municipal Stadium was where Memorial Stadium was. Well, I tried to 33rd Street. Do you think that's St. Paul Street? It looks like it to me. I don't know. I don't know. I could never identify. They got off the train probably at Penn Station and marched up and went up St. Paul. That's what I think they did. Well, they came in on the old B and A from Annapolis. We were there. <laughs> this is Oriole Park at uh, Greenmount and uh, 29th Street, burning down the night of July 4th, 1944. And this is the night that Italy surrendered. And this is a picture of Little Italy. And this is another line, and I have to tell you something, not the best piece of um, news about the war. You know, we opened these Japanese camps, uh, uh, prisoner of war camps, uh, in, uh, what do you call them prisoner of war camps? Internment camps. In uh, California, in the Midwest, and all Japanese had to go there. Well, in, here in Baltimore, we asked, we told, Every family of German, Italian, or Japanese ancestry to turn in each and every radio that they had. No questions asked. And if you didn't turn it in, you'd be arrested. Now, whether or not we had the right to do that, I don't know. But this is a picture, I thought it was interesting, that we, we seized this um, from people who had done nothing other than the fact that they happened to be, have an Italian name or a... Uh, a German name. And this is interesting because it was one week before Easter in 1944 we had this huge snowstorm. Pretty late. Yeah. It was uh, March 28th, 1942. It was pretty late to get a foot of snow. What's well, the reason I put the picture in there, we were not allowed to report that because the government felt if the enemy knew that the city was paralyzed, they would bomb us. Well, again, uh, we sold a lot of war bonds, and that's a Japanese sub that we put on display down in uh, 
Courthouse Square. We're about to drop the bomb. Surrender. the greatest headline ever to appear in the Sun Papers. The war was over. It had been a very long war. And of course, pent-up relief. People spilled out into the streets. Uh, conga lines everywhere. Marching bands. And went down to hundreds of thousands of people around the clock uh, crowded downtown. The center of town used to be Ballroom Charles at, at uh, Sun Square. What we call Sun Square. And that's basically where it uh, came from. But some people worried about that piece and so they went to church and I found this picture a Roman Catholic at St. Alphonsus Church at 114 West Saratoga Street and they prayed that the peace in fact would hold. That's the morning after. That's the confetti. That's the morning after. Now Back to, oh, I'm not doing this. Back to play. Okay. i got to finish this story of Sergeant Blum. Because I found Mrs. Blum. And I went to see her. You remember she had received a visitor, Lieutenant Walter Sabathian. He had been a member of that flight crew when her husband had been shot down. And he came to see Mrs. Blum on Loyola Southway to say hello to the wife of his old shipmate and to share with her his concern for his welfare and the hope that he would be safe and would be home soon. As it turned out in May 1945, Mrs. Blum received a cablegram from her husband. He was alive and well and in Camp Lucky Strike, France. A few weeks later, she received a telegram that he would be home soon. And he was in mid-August 1945. And I know that because I went to see her. There were about 50 blooms. I called 49 of them until I found them. <laughs> she said, as usual, you guys at the Sun got it wrong. She said when Sergeant Bloom parachuted out, he didn't land in Yugoslavia, he landed in Albania. A farmer saw him hit the ground and carried him into his house. He told Sergeant Bloom that there was a doctor nearby and he would bring him and it turned out that the farmer didn't go for a doctor. He went for the police who arrested Sergeant Bloom and turned him over to the Nazis. Within weeks he was a prisoner in Stalag 17 from the movie of the same name. Sergeant Bloom came home that August to the embrace of a long, worrying wife and family. And if you want to have some idea of what life was like in Baltimore in World War II, just multiply that incident by a thousand. In closing, each person who lived through these times in Baltimore will have his or, own, his or her own connection to them. 
depending on age, geography, time passing, and the power of memory. But having immersed himself in the having immersed myself in the literature of this place and talked with many who were there, I find several themes emerging. First, home front Baltimore was a place of startling contrast. I checked the um, Flower Mart, 1944. At the same time, the kids were walking around with lemon sticks and ladies were preparing all these flowers. We were preparing to invade Normandy at the same time. Well, so what? But it did strike me as a place of, of contrast and war is like that. I don't know what to make of it. Second, I did find that sacrifice was uneven among families. For some, the war was a, a discomforting exercise and inconvenience. Some people made a lot of money during the war. But for others, it was a nightmare in which lives were changed and some destroyed. I went to a reunion of uh, Plants of Forest Park and I talked to a woman. She's a widow. I said, uh, the husband there, he said, they were army. He came home, he had been on a secret mission. And he died. I said, uh, well, how did he die? He came home, he committed suicide. The war was very hard and unevenly distributed among people. Third, this city would be changed forever. We would never again be a city of a million people with all those department stores and all those factories and plants making clothing and iron and steel. It would never again be the same. That was the last time for it. It was a momentous turning point in our history. And lastly, as clear as they all clear, that was the last war that everybody felt good about fighting and was prepared to sacrifice for. And when the armistice was signed on August 14, 1945, more than a war ended, and here it did. Thank you very much for coming out and Thank you. I have some time for questions. Uh, thoughts? David, surely you're not going to let me get away with that. Well, I mean, uh, between my comments and your uh, uh, storytelling, you know, we gave a very good picture. We fought the war. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us uh, how the uh, war time worked compared to standard time? You know, I'm not sure about that. That's a very good question. You know, David, how did, how did wartime work? It wasn't daylight saving time, it was wartime. Yeah, it was daylight saving time in year round. Oh, was it? Year round, yeah. Well, the up one hour? Yeah, that's my recollection of it was year round. Would it be Greenwich Mean Time? Would they be referring to that? Uh, well, I guess it would start from there, yeah. Well, in the recording of Roosevelt's death, they give the time as Eastern wartime. Wartime. That's right, Eastern wartime. Thanks for picking up on that. I, I should have talked about that. I, tell the truth, um, um, I didn't understand a lot of that. Uh, and when you don't understand it, you just... <laughs> yes, sir? There was one interesting thing. I was involved in occasionally with, with uh, rationing. You mentioned about the lines and everything. Yeah. I was stationed in downtown Los Angeles for a little over a year in 1945, and I got tired, and I had an apartment house living alone. I wasn't married then. Got tired of eating out in the restaurant every night. So I'd occasionally go to the market there. There was like Lexington Market here. And I'd be in uniform, of course. All the women that were there waiting for their meat or whatever would step aside and motion me right to the front. I always got my food whenever I wanted to. I do remember, I do remember um, that servicemen during the war were able to ride the streetcars without paying. Uh, and that was true all over the all over the world. I was in Panama for a while during the war. I got on a, on a bus and you just, or a streetcar, you just, well, nobody, we, nobody asked you for any money. So. We were allowed to play golf as often as we want to at the Los Angeles Country Club, which was the home of many of the big movie stars. No greens fees, no caddy fees, no nothing. That's how we won the war. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs>
Glenn Marcus. You mentioned uh, you know, some people always have. Glenn Marcus is a, a documentary a writer and producer in his own right. I want you to know that. Grew up across the street from the and That's one reason why myself and my sister drew seven books. I helped raise it. of the massacre. I helped raise it. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that some people always had ration stamps as well. Yeah. Uh, um, was there, were there any actions against any, or feelings about war profiteers? Always. There was always action and there was always more of it. Uh, you know, it's just the way life is. There's always somebody who knows how to beat the system. And when there were people war, I noticed that many did. You could look at the papers and three people were arrested for, uh, for bad price ceilings and, you know, can, a can of salmon, 15 cents. So the grocer would charge 16 cents and they, they would come to police, you know. But he'd take one can of salmon home and sell it for a dollar, but that's the way it worked. Yes, yes, sir, back there. Yeah, you mentioned about the German-Americans and Italian-Americans that took their radios away. Yeah. So the significance of that, and also, did Baltimore know about the internment of the Japanese on the West Coast? Uh, well, I didn't, because I wasn't here, but anybody here who was here, did you know about it? Uh, Sally? I mean, Sally. Uh, <laughs> That's <laughs> your daughter. <laughs> um, did you know about the Japanese internment? I don't think we yeah, made that known. I, I definitely did. Definitely you did. knew about it? It was in the newspapers. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. I didn't know about it because I was overseas at the time, so I didn't know. Yes, sir? Uh, one small detail. Several times you mentioned when the air raid siren went off in downtown Baltimore, people were, went to the air raid shelter. Mm -hmm. Where were the air raid shelters downtown? The basements of these stores were converted oh, into wow. air raid shelters. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yes. United Service Organization. And there were seven or eight of them in Baltimore. And interestingly, in those days, the white, black, Jewish, Catholic, they weren't all the same. You know, if you were Jewish, you went here. If you were Catholic, you went here. If you were Protestant, you went here. That's just the way it, it worked uh, in, in those days. They still want a PWI, and most airports around the country still have them. Yeah. Well, um, the same girls who danced at them aren't there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't look for them there. I did find a hostess. Her name was so uh, Sonia, Sonia Fox. I found a hostess. Yeah, she was a hostess at a, at a USO at uh, 305 West Monument Street. And uh, she was a uh, worked at the book department of Hoshel Cones. And if she got off the of work, she went over to uh, 305 West Minus Street and danced with the soldiers and sailors and airmen who came in. Uh, and um, she said I was a terrible dancer. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, sir. Just, yes. I mean, man. Just, just for fun, I'm going to share one or two stories. Uh huh. You uh, can you speak a little louder? Maybe you should stand I, I, up. I was a baby during World War II. Okay. And my father was stationed in, in Baltimore, in, in Maryland, uh, guarding Italian prisoners of war. One, one of the people there that he was working with was a doctor, you know, an American doctor. And so he was a pediatrician back then. And he really missed seeing babies. And my father said, well, I'll bring my daughter. <laughs> so, and, and so they had me sing for the prisoners of <laughs> that is a story. Yes, sir. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of my father uh, worked uh, on developing the atomic bomb. Really? We, we lived in New York, and so my mother had to drive from New York down to Tennessee to be with my father. They had special roads that you could drive on, and you had to have covers the lights because we were passing military vehicles and things like that on these special roads. Well, the secrecy during the war came up in almost every interview I had. Uh, a man named Hyde Poussin, P-U-S-I-N, worked for Ben Martin developing secret aircraft, and his wife worked for Bendix developing secrets. He said they, they'd sit down at dinner and couldn't talk. All, everything was so secret, they were so afraid. And the, uh, the bomb itself was shrouded in secrecy. And, and I often thought, what would happen if Hitler got that bomb first? You know, the whole history of the world would have changed. We used to have armed guards come collect that garbage. 
Yes, I, I believe it. Of course, it's easy to believe. What's the push of data engineer was he? Uh, he was a metallurgist. Yes. Yeah, I, I too, uh, I worked on the atomic bomb myself. Um, and where was this? Well, this was at Columbia University in uh -huh. New York City. I see. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. You didn't know you were working on an atomic bomb? Well, we were... Are you a chemist or a... No, I'm an, I'm an electrical engineer now, now but I was a, uh, an electrical mechanic, electrical mm -hmm. electronics. I studied in high school. And um, this was a long time ago. I'm older than I look. <laughs> um, were you in service at the time? No, no, no. This okay. was before, before I went into service. I understand. And um, we were, this, was, this work was being done in Columbia University. And we had pans and pans of uranium ore. Mm -hmm. And I had studied chemistry. And I knew what uranium was. And the stuff was all over the place. Just in pans. You walked along. I could have taken some home if I wanted well, to. What were you going to but anyway, um, the only precaution that we took was that we had to bring separate clothing for uh, while we were on the job. We would take a shower before we left the university and change into our other clothes. Fascinating. Anyway, unbelievable. You saw this uranium pans and pans and pans of Anyway, that was... Anybody else? Thank you very much for an interesting evening.